Thanks for listening to the Faith Radio podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. I'm Carmen LaBurge. I hope you enjoy. Happy New Year, and thanks for listening to this Best of Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. Again, Happy New Year, and thank you for listening to this Best of Mornings Without Carmen here on Faith Radio. I'm Paul, looking back at some of our conversations, the ones I had this uh, past year, filling in for Carmen here on Faith Radio. Good to have you with me on this first day of the new year of 2024, which, by the way, is also the eighth day of Christmas. All right, maybe you're already saying, Christmas? I'm done with that. It's January 1st. I even have my Christmas decorations put away. I do know some people who on New Year's Eve, as part of their holiday celebration, if they got a real tree, do not try this with an artificial, but they have a real tree in their living room, and they'll bring it outside and um, make a bonfire with it, if they have a yard big enough and a good burn pit. But yeah, they'll do that as a way of winding down the year. Again, Do not try that with an artificial tree. But, you know, people have different traditions. The church has developed many traditions over the years, like, okay, celebrating the birth of Jesus, like we did on December 25th. And since there was so much to think about around his coming, some parts of the church developed the tradition of setting aside not just one, but 12 days to commemorate and reflect on the coming of Jesus. Thus, the 12 days of Christmas, starting on Christmas Day and ending uh, on the celebration of Epiphany. Now, while the 12 days of Christmas is still on the calendar, several different expressions of the church have different ways they commemorate each of those days or different things they think of. I mean, okay, uh, on December 25th, day one of Christmas, yeah, much of the Western world reflects on the birth of Jesus. uh, And the rest of the days from there kind of vary as to what's being commemorated. However, there is some uniformity about the eighth day of Christmas. You know why? Because the eighth day after the birth of Jesus is mentioned in Scripture. Yeah, you go to Luke chapter 2, verse 21, and on the eighth day, or at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So, okay, he was circumcised on the eighth day after he was born, which would be, you know, today if you're looking at Christmas Day. and Yeah, well, that likely happened in Bethlehem at a synagogue. And we know what also happened approximately 40 days after he was born, because that's also mentioned in Luke, and it includes music. <laughs> I hope you've noticed that in the Gospel of Luke and his accounts of Jesus' birth and early life, there are three songs. There is Mary's song, sometimes called the Magnificat, which you can find in Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 46. And Mary said, My soul praises the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Or some translations, my soul magnifies the Lord, thus Magnificat. And it goes on from there. And then the second song is that of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, where starting at verse 68... Yeah, I have the song, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And again, that song goes on from there. So, yeah, there's these songs, these psalms. I sense Mary, because, okay, Luke got most of his information about the birth 
of Jesus and all the, the things surrounding it from Mary, who, you know, pondered these things in her heart. And something tells me Mary was a musical person and used songs or psalms to help ponder. That way she locked them into her mind. Now, that third song I mentioned, because those are the first two, there's one more, and that comes about 40 days after Jesus' birth. Let's look at it. It starts in Luke 22. It was then about that time for their purification offering, as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of Moses says if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. And so they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. At least that was what was offered by the poor. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and to rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him, and he had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord, as was required by the law, Simeon was there. And he took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace, as you promised. I have, been your, I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. Mary, did you know? <laughs> it's one of those Mary, did you know no moments here. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about their son. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, the baby's mother, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. That's pretty weighty. No wonder Mary pondered these things in her heart. And, okay, you heard that song there. The, some call it the non stimitus, now dismiss, because that's what Zechariah sang in that moment. That's, I wonder if he had it practiced out. But regardless, on this eighth day of Christmas, I hope you keep pondering the deeper truth of Christmas. Yes, God came to dwell among us, and not just to give us warm, fuzzy feelings. This baby was destined for a purpose. He came with a purpose, to redeem his fallen creation, to save us from the sins that destroy us, both as individuals and as families and as communities. Yes, he would be opposed as Simeon prophesied, and there would be pain for Jesus and for his family. Again, Mary, did you know Let's just say she was warned. So she had that. But I'm sure like the rest of us, as we go through our lives and as she was going through Jesus's life, she was probably holding on for dear life herself because so much happened that I'm sure she kind of had an inkling, but how it played out, oof. Anyway, still, Jesus saved us, not just from sin so we can go to heaven, but for something, a mission. As the Father sent Jesus into the world, we who are still in the world are, and are trusting Jesus are now sent into our families, into our workplaces, into our neighborhoods, into our communities, to the nations, to point people to Jesus and his kingdom, to live out as his disciples and citizens of that heavenly kingdom as best we can his kingdom ways. In short, just as Jesus 
was called Emmanuel, God with us. Now let us live out Jesus in our lives because he's with us. His spirit is with us. Let's live that out in the world. If you've never taken that mission seriously, I do hope you do that in 2024. The world needs it. Well, again, this is the New Year's Day edition of Mornings Without Carmen. And again, we're looking back at 2023. Why? Again, because it helps to know where we've been and where we are so we can better plot a course forward on our way to the kingdom. Now, a few weeks ago, with various dictionary companies coming out with their words of the year, well, I wanted to have words about words. And with that, I had to talk to an English language expert, Karen Swallow Pryor. She'll join me in just a few moments here on Mornings Without Carmen on Faith Radio. If speech is a bridge from mind to mind for gainful interchange designed, as uh, Amos Russell Wells said, then our words and a clear understanding of them, that's pretty important. Therein lies the interesting conundrum. We live in a time, well, words have always changed meaning, but we have, we're living in a world where words keep getting redefined, new words being created to uh, fit perceived needs and It's confusing. So to help us understand that, I'm glad to have Karen Swallow-Prior on. She's the author of The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, Metaphors, you didn't put words in there, uh, Karen, create a culture of crisis. Why didn't you put the word word in there? There were a lot of words in there. (laughs) Well, I, I know that, but I mean in the title, the word word. Well, a metaphor can be a single word. All words are metaphorical. That's a big premise of the book. Oh, you're, 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 you're blowing your mind already. <laughs> already. <laughs> but we're looking at the words of the year because, okay, different dictionaries every year put out their word of the year. And that has actually led to a lot of conversations. I heard one with Russell Moore and, and uh, Mike Hosper on their podcast. And they got on, for example, Merriam-Webster, their word of the year was authentic. And... I was surprised that came up again because I think that's been pretty big for a while. But what now you being a wordsmith and also a cultural analyst, what did that trigger in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I I was surprised as well when I heard that was the word of the year because I thought, oh, how early postmodern because, uh, you know, because authentic has been a so, you know, to use the term postmodern, which is, you know, tricky um, and debatable, but that's been a word that's been part of late modern or postmodern culture for 20 or 30 years in the sense of, of being true to oneself and, um, you know, and, and there's books, lots of books written on that, lots of, lots of uh, discussion about that sense of authentic. But of course, as soon as I looked at the first news story, I realized, okay, this is in the context in of AI. Um, and that makes total sense because yeah. we see so much fake stuff that um, what is authentic is now rarer and rarer. It is interesting because AI, when you look at a lot of the words, factors heavily into this discussion. For example, um, Cambridge came up with their word was hallucinate. And they're not talking just, you know, somebody seeing something that isn't there. This is talking about when artificial intelligence hallucinates. In other words, produces false information. 
Yeah, isn't I, that it's so crazy. Now, again, I just said that all words are metaphorical. Um, True. The words that we use commonly, we use so much that we forget that they began as metaphors. And this is a really good example of that because we're so used to the word hallucinate being used in the con context of a mind, a human mind, um, that it's counterintuitive to think of AI as being able to do that. But of course, it's meant metaphorically. And in that context, it actually makes sense. It does. Now, Oxford had a different word. And it's okay. It's Riz. <laughs> and this is one of those and, and if, 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 if you find this cringe, which is one of those words, again, <laughs> that uh, kind of urban dictionary stuff make it into the broader mm -hmm. parlance, Riz, explain where that comes from and what it means. Well, I had heard of this word um, just before these you know, news stories of the word of the year came out because my husband is a public high school teacher. So, ah. he, you know, once in a while we'll introduce me to a new word, um, some, you know, <laughs> if it's appropriate. <laughs> Um, and so this was one that had had come up and uh, it, it's everyone seems to think that it's whether the kids realize it or not it's riz is short for something like charisma uh they might have mean something different than we mean by that but it's the same idea kind of having appeal um sex appeal personality um riz <laughs> so <laughs> Put on, put it. Was there a song a long time? Put on the Riz or something? I, I maybe... no, that's the Ritz. Putting on the Ritz. That's uh, an old, putting old, on the old, Ritz. Yeah, that's that's, old, that's that's way back. That's, uh, yeah, that's you know, way you're back. talking Gary Cooper here. Come on, dressed up like a million dollar trooper. You know, trying to trying hard to look like Gary Cooper, super duper. Yeah, that that's that's way. Well, it, could, it could, yeah, it's way back. But way you back. know, it, it reminds me of that word. Yeah, and again, those were the words of the year with those three different. Uh, public or you know websites uh, merriam-webster oxford and cambridge there's a few that were under the rate not so much under the radar but were also heavily used one that um i thought was interesting merriam-webster brought about this because they said this was searched a lot covenant hmm. yeah i go ahead yeah and you know why it was searched out a lot i i, I read an article about it yes and it was searched out not for biblical or marital or fidelity means, but because of the school shooting, it was just a widely searched term. Um, but then, of course, people would find other meanings. But that's that's what I think they attribute it to. There's that. But I'm also thinking, OK, people, when they heard about the Covenant School shooting down near Nashville, it was like one of those things that jumped out of them. Covenant. Covenant. What's that? And my hope is when they actually saw what the word meant, <laughs> hopefully would it trigger something in their mind and heart. You're very optimistic, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> but I think when you get on Google and you type in a word like that, the things that will show up are going to be the ones that are in, you know, are, have the most hits and it go it would go directly to the news stories about that. Mm. But it but it still is it, a beautiful word. It is. Uh, certainly should get people thinking about why why the school would have been named that so yeah. okay i'm being optimistic my hope you know even if a few people finally are you know see the beauty of that word well again we're talking with karen swallow prior here on mornings with carmen on faith radio and as we continue okay all these new words all these other words and how things are being redefined what does that say about us in the modern era and how are we as christians supposed to be mindful of the words we use. We'll talk about that next here on Faith Radio.
I'm Carmen LeBurge, host of Mornings with Carmen. How good are you? You feeling good? You doing good? God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. Goodness is the character of God and the work of God, but we don't always feel so good, do we? I mean, are you good? You feeling good? You doing good? Maybe you have a sense that you need some healing, that you desire some wholeness. Our friend Susie Larson has a new book, Waking Up to the Goodness of God, 40 Days Toward Healing and Wholeness, and we'd like for you to have a copy. Faith Radio is giving away 100 copies of Susie's new book, and we'd like for you to have one. So enter to win yours now at MyFaithRadio.com. We want to know the goodness of God all the time. Connecting Faith to Life, Faith Radio. So have you ever thought of the weight of a word that falls in the heart like the song of a bird that gladdens the springtime of memory and youth and garlands with cedar the banner of truth that moistens the harvesting spot on, of the brain like dewdrops that fall on the meadow of grain or that shrivels the germ and destroys the fruit and lies like a worm at the lifeless root. Ever hear that one, Karen? I have not. Please tell me where that is from. <laughs> Kate Slaughter McKinney. Is she a 19th century American writer? I I just found this online. I Googled it, I admit. That, that's my guess. It sounds very 19th century American. It does, so, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. Very 19th century, regardless of country. But I just, oh, I, now I will look her up later. <laughs> well, this is Mornings with Carmen. I'm Paul filling in and talking with Karen Swallow Pryor about our words because of all these lists that came out for words of the year. There's one more I want to pass by you. This was on the runner-up list for Oxford's Dictionary, parasocial which means the relationship characterized by the one-sided, unreciprocated sense of intimacy felt by a viewer, fan, or follower of a well-known or prominent figure in which the follower or fan comes to feel falsely that they know the celebrity as a friend. That, that's that a, is a great word. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that's always been true that, phenomenon since there have been celebrities but it's only intensified when there's so much of a celebrity that can be known and seen through social media um you know constant flow of of personal and seemingly intimate information so um i'm glad that they have a word for that because that's <laughs> really a phenomenon yeah we needed a word for it you know looking at all these words though karen and you being a cultural analyst as well as just a very you know good reader and encouraging us to read. What do these words say about what we're, the time we're living in right now in your mind? Mm. Well, this is why the news every year of what the word of the year is, is, is so interesting and why so many people talk about it. And, and of course, there are two ways that they generally come up with it. One is the Google searches that we've talked about, which is as what word people are looking for. And then other ways, the dictionaries, they can use Google searches, but they're also usually measuring in cultural um, developments and emphases. And so these words of the year 
do tell us something about what the past year or the preceding years have been and what has consumed our attention and our interest. And that's a great measure. Um, in terms of the way words work themselves, I mean, you mentioned this at the start of our conversation, words do change meanings. Um, and people like me uh, who teach English and who tend more toward what's called prescriptivism, which is like following the rules, mm -hmm. um, we don't we don't like that. We would rather have the words not change meanings. Um, descriptivist linguists are those who just say, you know, all they're doing is describing the way people use words. And really, I think that the proper approach is somewhere in between to recognize that there are rules and they make a difference and they help us communicate with each other, but also to realize that language is a tool for human beings given to us by God. And they are malleable and they can change. And it's it's really important for us. I mean, we can't just randomly change them, but words reflect what human beings are doing and thinking. Uh, and they're trying, they are communicating meaning. And so it's really important for us to understand what a person really means when they use a word, whether it's the right word or the best word or not. Um, words are sort of like a, a, a they, they point to something that people who use them are pointing to something and we have to kind of like look beyond the pointing sign to see what it is that they're really talking about. Um, and that's why words are so important and fascinating and fun and also, you know, that we can mess them up and misunderstand one another with them. Yeah, it's like what you, you got to ask the clarifying questions. It's like when you hear somebody say a protester screaming from the river to the mm -hmm. sea, you know. Palestine will be free. Okay, what do you mean by uh, that? Absolutely. Because there's so many who don't, don't get the idea, oh, that's actually can be a call for genocide. And they don't understand that because that's not in their right. mind. They're just, right. You know, yeah. So again, asking clarifying questions is important. So I'm going to ask you one more clarifying question because we have just okay. about five more minutes here. And this is a big one. As Christians, we should be mindful of how we use our words. And I want you to address that because sometimes I think we can be pretty flippant. I, I'm guilty of it just as much as anybody else. I'll, you know, coin a word or just be silly with my words. But again, what is the the call you feel on us as Christians when it comes to how we use our words? Mm. Well, the Bible says that we will be called to account for every uh, careless word that we use. And that is a... Um, that's that's really scary if you think about it. Our words are really very important. Um, I don't. That doesn't mean we should run around in fear and trembling, but we we should be in a in the practice and habit of using our words carefully, not only in conversation with one another. I mean, face to face conversation is is where it's easier to kind of understand one another. Even, even in difficult moments because we have body language and tone and all of those things and we can follow up. But in the digital age, when it's so easy to post a word or a sentence or a passage or on social media, uh, uh, words that can be untrue, whether intentionally or not, or mean or, um, or sarcastic, it's so easy to put those words out there and then they just 
do the damage that they do before they can be taken back. And Christians should be extremely mindful and cautious about that. And and not only that, but we have such an opportunity to use our words out there to heal and mm-hmm. to be kind and to in, to entice and invite. Um, imagine if we took all the opportunities that are out there to encourage and um, and build up with our words. And uh, of course we have a lot out there who are doing the opposite um, and gaining a lot from it, um, but we have so much more to gain by using our words in a, in a loving and truthful way. And I tell you, Karen, you have Riz with us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Aww. Uh, hey, since this will probably be the last time we talk to you on our show before Christmas, uh, anything big happening for Christmas this year? Any special traditions you and your husband have? Uh, well, we, my parents live with us, my elderly parents. Mm. And so we've been spending uh, Christmas Eve together, well, through the pandemic. And now that's just sort of opening up. So I'm not sure what we'll do this year, but we always spend um, Christmas dinner uh, in the afternoon um, at our neighbor's home where a lot of people are invited and we mm. just have like a big neighborhood family meal and that's become very special to us over the years you don't call it a potluck do you well no because we plan it oh okay okay okay. (laughs) (laughs) well karen thanks again for joining us here on mornings with carmen it's always great to talk with you great to talk with you well again this is mornings without carmen on faith radio i'm paul and okay as we're just thinking about some of the words of the year i want to throw a bunch of words out at you okay here we go Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Yeah, it's a long list, isn't it? And the, you, you, hopefully you know where that comes from. That's uh, the, the fruits of the flesh or the works of the flesh that Paul lists in Galatians chapter 5. And he even after that says, and things like these, because the list, that list is not comprehensive. Um, he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, we've been talking this morning, as I've mentioned it a few times, about being on mission. And our mission is to be ambassadors of the kingdom, sharing the, me- the message of reconciliation with the world. Are you on that mission? Are you there proclaiming the kingdom values that you want to invite people in? Because these are the values, these are the ways that give life. You're kind of going, oh, okay. What are those ways? Well, earlier in the first hour, I was reflecting on our Growing Your Faith verse, which is, again, 2 Corinthians 5.17, and how it talks about we've been given new life. The new life has begun, and it's for a purpose, because it goes on from the verses there that we are to be ambassadors of Christ, representing him and the values of the kingdom. Okay, as ambassadors, how are we representing his values? Or maybe the better question is, what are the values we're supposed to represent? Well, coming up in a few moments here on Faith Radio on Mornings Without Carmen, back in, I think it was in June, I had the opportunity when I was filling in for Carmen to talk to Pastor Jonathan Cruz. Among other things, he's the author of the book, The The Character That Is of Christ, The Fruit of the Spirit in the Life of Our Savior. 
yeah, I know we talk about the fruit of the Spirit oftentimes, and we don't think about this is the way of Jesus. Well, he helps us see that, and we'll talk to him shortly. Again, Mornings Without Carmen for this New Year's Day on Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to this special Best of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. You look at that list of the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, forbearance, and so on, and you're kind of going, I wish that was more me. Well, first off, where do you see it in the Bible? Hey, I'm Paul, filling in for Carmen on Mornings with Carmen, and I came across a little book that I thought was quite good, so I wanted to talk to the pastor who wrote it, Jonathan Cruz, joining us from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, Jonathan is the pastor of, uh, uh, what is it, uh, Community Presbyterian Church in Kalamazoo. Jonathan, thanks for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Paul. You've had a nice jog this morning, and you're ready to rock and roll here, which is good. As we look at the fruit of the Spirit, now a lot of people go right to Galatians chapter 5. The list is there, but I want us to go to the very beginning, the very good place to start all the way back in creation, when we look at the fruit of the Spirit now, <laughs> people are going to go, why are you going back there? Because fruitfulness was God's desire and design, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, we read in, in the the creation account that God placed man in a garden, interestingly, mm-hmm. uh, to tend and to, to keep it. That would be to, to bear fruit, cultivate fruit. Uh, certainly, that's a physical task. Adam had 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 a real job that would, you know, his there would be dirt under his fingernails as he as he got to work in the way that God called him to. But it was a physical task that that would have mirrored a spiritual responsibility as well, which was to to mimic in his heart and life the character of his God. And so we see that's the the sense in which fruitfulness is used later on in Galatians, as we're we're accustomed to it when we talk about the fruit of the spirit. But that idea of, of being godly or working to to um, reflect godliness or to cultivate godliness is 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 part of the deal of being made in the image of God. That's what God wants for us to truly reflect Him. And um, so when we when we look right to the very beginning, we see that this has always been um, a, a call, a responsibility, um, a, even a demand. We could say upon uh, upon humanity. Of course, Adam and Eve failed, and mm-hmm. um, things get worse there. Uh, but yeah, it definitely starts right there in, in the garden in terms of um, mankind being made in the image of God. What does that mean? It means to bear fruits unto godliness. Mm-hmm, it does. And as you mentioned, Adam failed. Seth, his son, the godly son failed. Noah and his family failed. Israel <laughs> failed. Yeah. King David failed. <laughs> it keeps happening. And then comes Jesus, the second Adam. So what do we see in him? Right. And so that, you know, this gets to the kind of um, uh, the the kind of key of the book. The book is called The Character of Christ, and yet it's a look at the fruit of the Spirit. And, and the, uh, the, the point that I want to get across is if you want to understand what love, joy, peace, patience, and all the rest really looks like, you need to look first to Jesus. <laughs> and he is the first one. Adam failed. Israel's another spectacular failure. And, and, um, God even likens them to a vineyard in in the prophet Isaiah chapter 5 and says, you did not bear fruit, and he rejects the nation then, of course, because of that. And then he says, fine, I'm going to send my own servant who will do this for me, and and that that, um, comes to fruition in in the life of Jesus Christ. And so we have one who truly is 
man, but is truly God as well and is able to do that thing that since the fall, none of us have been able to do. And that is to to mirror God, to reflect God, uh, to live the way in which God uh, calls him to live, calls all of us to live. And in that way, we see um, these these spiritual virtues um, in perfectly, perfectly displayed in the life of Jesus Christ. We do. We do. Again, we're talking with Jonathan Cruz, pastor from Kalamazoo, author of The Character of Christ, The Fruit of the Spirit in the Life of Our Savior. Oh, um, I do have copies to give away, thanks to uh, Jonathan and his publisher. Uh, If you'd like to get in on the drawing, because I find that a very, very engaging and very helpful, not devotional, but it really is inspiring. So if you'd like to be in the drawing to win a copy, text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484 and just follow the hyperlink we send back and you'll be in on the drawing. Again, text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. Now, this this may seem kind of obvious, but let's look at some of the different aspects of the fruit. And I, I kind of be careful because it's not fruits, it's fruit. It's kind of a package right. deal. And so let's look at how the love aspect, as you write about it, you see that in Christ. I mean, it should be obvious, but maybe it's not so obvious. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, to, to those who are um, spiritually blind or or our, our spiritual vision is clouded, certain things that should be obvious aren't. You're right. So, um, but the love of God is is manifest. It's it's on full display in the person of Christ, and Jesus says very clearly. If you want to know what love is, you you look to me. Greater love has no one than this, than someone laid down his life for his friends. And that's he says that in the Upper Room Discourse. And of course, shortly after, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. So he gives us um, the key right there to unlocking the, uh, the definition of love from God's perspective. What does it mean to love in the way that God wants us to love? It's a sacrificial love. The, the Greek word underlying that many Christians have heard before familiar with agape that means the sacrificial self-denying love and that's that marked the entire ministry of Christ um in love he came to earth in love he was born in into poverty and squalor in, in love he he um performed miracles but preeminently in love he laid down his life Romans 5 tells us that right mm-hmm. um that that even when we were enemies Christ loved us and died for us. So it's not that he got anything out of it. It's not that we deserved it. It's that truly um, he did it to glorify and magnify the Father in bestowing upon us the sacrificial love. So we see love preeminently in the life of Christ laid down at the cross. Let's switch to joy because, you know, you, you hear about Jesus being the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief and from from Isaiah, and he wept, you know, <laughs> with, with the death of, of Lazarus. But there was also joy. And of course, you know, for a lot of people, joy, they may not have a full understanding of what joy is. So how do you see joy displayed so fully in Jesus? Yeah, great question. Well, just one thing quickly, Paul, just to connect what you said earlier, that it's the fruit of the Spirit, this collective singular noun, they all go together. Mm-hmm. Uh, we said love, love is seen at the cross. Well, joy, we also see Hebrews 12 tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the shame and went to the cross. And so we see even love and joy coalesce there and, and combine there. Um, but but yes, Jesus Christ, uh, perhaps not known for being a jovial person. I don't think we give uh, him uh, uh, proper credit in that, that respect. 
He's a man of sorrows, but a man filled with joy. And that joy is a joy that's set on the will of his father. It's an abiding joy that nothing can detract from when he knows that his father's will is good and glorious and nothing can um, thwart his father's plan. And we, we're we told that as much in um, the gospel of Luke in chapter 10, the, the disciples return from a, a kind of missionary journey they, they've gone on and the, the demons are subject to them. And they're just so excited about this. How amazing is this? We've had this great ministry success. And Jesus comes back and says, uh, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then immediately after after that, it says, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding, but revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, such is your gracious will. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. He had that joy that Galatians 5 says can be ours, a fruit of the Spirit. And it's in the gracious will of his Father in writing his disciples' names in the book of life. He says, that's what you should be happy about. Not circumstances like your ministry success, which ebb and flow. And we know that too, Paul, don't we? We oh, yeah. we, we our happiness and things that come and go, and then we, we feel dejected. How, how can we have this abiding joy. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. How can we do that when life's so hard? Well, if you don't root your joy in things in this life, but in the life to come and what God promises us as his children. Goes back to the kingdom. Goes back to the kingdom. So again, we're talking with Jonathan Cruz, uh, author of Character, The Character of Christ. Now again, love, joy, peace, patience, or or forbearance, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Some people might say, well, Jesus didn't do them all. And we're going to address that in just a few moments here as we continue talking with Jonathan on Faith Radio. Jesus loves the little children. You guys know that. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. And right now, there are little children in the world who need Jesus. They also need things like basic food and medical care. Jesus tells us that what we do for the least of these, the little ones, we do for him. So this is your time to become the champion of one child, to change their life. When you sponsor just one child, you plant seeds of hope and You work together with people who are on the ground to change the families, the communities, the future. You might not feel like you could change the world, but you can for one child. Meet the kids and find your child at MyFaithRadio.com. Let's continue our conversation with Jonathan Cruz. I'm Paul, by the way, filling in for Carmen here on Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. And Jonathan, we've been going through talking about your book and actually talking about Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit in his life. And as we look at, again, the the, the list that is given in Galatians, and I come to gentleness and self-control, and I hear a lot of people like to, and some like to celebrate the fact that Jesus lost control of himself at the temple and was, you know, turning over tables and chasing out the money changers, and that wasn't very kind. That wasn't very self-controlled, but it was so good. Okay, it's a little more more than that. I want you to address that issue because even in that, there was a kindness, and there actually was a lot of self-control. Yeah, that's a great question, Paul. Thanks for raising it. so Jesus and the money changers, when we talk about uh, kindness, oh, was Jesus not being kind to the people there? Well, uh, kindness is, you know, we could say that kindness is a disposition of the heart. That's how at least I, I explained in the book that seeks the welfare of others. And what Jesus saw happening in the temple, the way that the worship of God was being perverted, 
was not tending to the welfare of the nation. And so he was moved um, uh, for for their own sake uh, to, to do something about it. Um, he was also, of course, moved by zeal for God's glory. Um, yes, indeed, uh, he was he was greatly um, he was greatly enraged. He was he was agitated. Uh, there's there's no doubt about that. We're not going to downplay the the um, the emotion that he put on display. But the question is, was he was it were his emotions not under his control? And I'd say, well, no, absolutely not. It was at that moment that he chose to reveal his zealousness for God by um, by by taking some violent actions, overturning uh, the tables and and uh, charging the money changers uh, out of out of the temple. So self control that 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 spiritual fruit. Uh, when we talk about self control, we're talking about kind of having self mastery, uh, not not being um, uh, dictated by by our feelings, such that we can't make clear decisions anymore. But I would say that Jesus was perfectly in control of his faculties at that moment and he he chose as as the perfect god man um to to reveal the glory of god in in a sort of um arresting way right it's it it, it caught people's attention but to think that at that moment jesus was was not in control would be uh, I would say it would be blasphemous. No, of course he was in control at that moment. So he actually displays the glory of god in in doing what he does to the money changers, but it's, of course, intentional all the way through. Mm, good answer. Like that, Jonathan. All right. As we look at your book, and it is, again, we do have copies we're giving away. Again, the book is called The Character of Christ, um, The Fruit of the Spirit in the Life of Our Savior. And we, if you'd like to get in on the drawing, 877-933-2484. Text the word book to that. Respond to the hyperlink we send back and get in the drawing. Um Jonathan, I think the core of this book, and you summarize it nicely at the end, has to do with why is it important for us to see the fruit of the Spirit in the life of Jesus for us as believers? Because, yes, we want this in our lives, and sometimes we'd like to white-knuckle it and whatever, and we got to be more loving, we got to be more kind, we got to be more forbearing. And yet, why is it important to first see it in Jesus? Yeah, I think that is the question that I'm trying to answer in this book, um, and really goes back to what what Jesus himself says in John uh, chapter 15 when he uses the analogy of vine and branches when he's talking to the the disciples about what it means to be uh, a, a follower of him or a believer. He says, "I'm the vine; you are the branches. Believers are branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing." So now we're talking about bearing fruit. How do we do it? If we just approach uh, the fruit of the spirit as a list of virtues to try to cultivate in our lives, um, and we just approach it right at Galatians 5 with no other context, it will seem like this is a to-do list given to us by God, and it will be in- immensely discouraging as we try to evince uh, these virtues and these characteristics in our lives. But if we remember what Jesus has said, and something, of course, Paul would have known was he gave this list i'm sure he's hearkening back to this discourse in some way we would remember wait no i need to be in christ before i can ever produce the kind of love that god wants or the kind of joy that he's after i can't do it on my own i need to be united to jesus and that's by faith and so that's what i mean in the book when i say you need to look to christ you need to view his life that's why the book gives uh, these you know examples of the fruit of the spirit in the ministry of jesus it's 
as we see them in his lives or in his life, um, those those fruit will be uh, manifested in our lives because to see him for who he is is what will what will unite us to him. When we see him for who he is, we have faith in him. We fall on our faces before him. We love him because he is um, in an unmatched and, and uh, unrivaled way, the heart of God. Uh, we see that in, in an incarnational way in the life of Christ. So as we as we look to him, as we come, become more and more enamored with him, we fall more and more in love with him, uh, and we we find ourselves in him, we will see he is in us, and he will give us his spirit, and his spirit will make us like the son. That's what Romans 8 tells us, um, right, that we will be conformed to the image of the firstborn son of God. And so indeed, as we have the spirit of God in us, it's not a demand that's placed upon us to to cultivate this fruit of the spirit. It's more his declaration, right? If you have my son, if you have my spirit, you will have this fruit as well. And that's a great comfort in the Christian life. So essentially, it's that whole worship thing that in the Old Testament, God warned, you know, if you worship idols, you'll become like them. Well, if you worship God, a lot of those characters become you start taking on those characteristics when you're when you're when you're enamored with Christ, you're worshiping him. It's like, oh, it just kind of become you just kind of take it in. That's absolutely right. Psalm 115 talks about how the idols of the nations, they don't have feet and they can't walk. They don't have hands. They can't touch. And those who make them are like them. So are those who trust in them. And the very next verse is, so Israel, trust in the Lord and you'll be made like him. (laughs) Exactly. Hey, Jonathan, thank you for this book. Now, I want to take a few moments here, just a couple of minutes, because you have a side hustle as it were. <laughs> yes, you're a pastor. You do articles and all these other things. You, you've been written in plenty of areas, but you also are a hymn writer. That's right. Yeah. Talk, talk about that. Yeah. So um, I've been writing hymns now for about 10 years. Um, and uh, I, I write hymn texts when people hear a hymn writer. They might think I, I write music too, but that's that's not my gifting. Um, but I've written about uh, close to 50 hymns now, a number of which have been published, but you can find all of them um, on my website, hymnsofdevotion.com, and they're all free. They're meant, it's meant to be a resource for the church, but essentially, you know, I've, just, I've always loved hymnody, the hymns of John Newton and, and the Wesley Brothers and mm-hmm. Augustus Toplady and all the rest, and um, I, when I was in college, I started dabbling with it, and uh, now that I'm in pastoral ministry, it's really become sort of um, an outlet in, in pastoral ministry as I'm uh, wrestling with the text, preparing to write a sermon. Um, oftentimes, I'll I'll turn turn to poetry and try to capture uh, the message in in a hymn, and then something that can then be used for my congregation as well. Um, and so I do really, yeah, I do see it as as um, a, you know a, a particular ministry of of mine in the in my role as a pastor and a preacher of the word it's meant to accompany the ministry of of the word and um i've been able to partner with a number of really gifted musicians guys who actually know what they're doing with music <laughs> uh to to bring these texts to life uh one of my recent collaborators is actually uh St. Paul um a, a native there and, and an artist in in the St. Paul Minneapolis area um Josh Bowder professor oh, okay. at Christian universities there, um, St. Thomas and Northwestern. So um, he and I have have written about a dozen together and uh, enjoying that collaboration and love to get them in the hands of God's people. Well, we had time, which we don't, unfortunately. I'd have you at least uh, recite one of the verses, you know, from one of your hymns. But 
it really would be cool but we're out of time right now but jonathan thank you for joining us this morning uh again if you want to check out his hymn writing it's just hymns of devotion.com otherwise uh jonathan's on twitter he's on facebook or check him out at the the kalamazoo um what is it uh, community presbyterian church in kalamazoo so jonathan thank you for joining us this morning here on faith radio thanks for having me you're welcome. Well, again, this is a Best of Mornings with Carmen here on Faith Radio, and I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jonathan Cruz. And again, as we seek to be on mission and represent Christ to the world, let us be representing those values, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the gentleness, the self-control, because these are the ways of life. These are the ways of God's kingdom, not just here, but in the eternal kingdom as well. Well, I'm Paul. Thank you again for spending time with me on this Best of Mornings with Carmen. Carmen's back tomorrow. Hey, as we're starting out the year, do you have a Bible reading plan? If not, go to MyFaithRadio.com. We'd love for you to join us in reading through the Bible together, the entire 66 books in 12 months. Why not start today? As a matter of fact, you can download the first part of it. We'll send you the rest of the reading plan. Just go to MyFaithRadio.com and request the reading plan for reading through the Bible in a year. Well, again, I'm Paul. Thank you again for spending time with me. Remember, the podcasts are available at MyFaithRadio.com, or if you get them on the other podcast platform, hey, remember to rate us there so others can find uh, Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. In the new year, may the Lord establish the work of your hands for His kingdom. Blessings. We'll see you tomorrow. I'm Carmen LeBurge. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Remember, it's your prayerful and faithful financial support that makes both the live show and the podcast available. Make your gift at MyFaithRadio.com.